Hey, Verbivores. Welcome to a new episode of the Coffee Chat Podcast. In today's episode, we sit down with Phil Hill, publisher of Phil on EdTech blog and partner at MindWires, and our own Kent Freeman, CEO of VitalSource. Listen in as we talk about the acceleration of change in higher education and the impact that change has on students, faculty, and stakeholders inside the higher ed space. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. Kent, Phil, so excited to have you both on the podcast. What a great meeting of the minds today. Thank you both for joining us. Super happy that you're here. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it. It's great to connect with people virtually and someday in person again. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Phil. Look forward to catching up. So just to kick this off, both of you have such an extensive breadth of knowledge and experience inside of the higher ed segment. Why don't you share a little bit about your role and previous roles in higher ed? So I've been working in higher ed for two decades. And if I had to summarize what my role is, it's often people would say I'm like a marriage counselor. So I'm not a vendor. I don't work at a school. I don't work with investors or foundations, but I find myself always working in between these areas. And a lot of it's helping one group understand the other, helping schools understand here's where, you know, digital content or learning platform markets are going and here's why, or helping investors understand here's how the market behaves. It's really consulting and market analysis, and it's all tied to teaching and learning, but really the the heart of the work is each group trying to understand each other, particularly during period of change. So, of course, we we have that going for us in spades right now. We do indeed, Phil. I started with Ingram 39 years ago. So I've been in the book business, including the higher ed space for almost all of my career. I would say that my real focus on the higher ed space started in 2006. I was lucky enough with Ingram to be part of a team that was trying to figure out what the digital transformation was going to mean to our business. And one of the first things we identified was that we knew that there would be a big digital transformation taking place in content supporting learning. And we focused on higher ed at that time and started this entity Ingram Digital Group, and it was started 2006. By July 2006, we had acquired VitalSource, which was then primarily in the serving dental schools and, and nursing programs with learning materials. And was lucky enough to, to help support that team. Took over as president in 2009. I've been associated with, with VitalSource in some way since then. So definitely lots of experience from both of you. It's, it's interesting. This will be a great conversation as we talk about all the changes in higher ed that we have you know, kind of been brought on this last year. Obviously, a, a flood of movement and technology needs that have really rapidly changed and accelerated with the onset of the pandemic. What are some of those changes that maybe both of you have taken note of that seemed kind of highlights within the last year or large changes that you've noticed? To put it in context, there's a lot of things that you could argue either haven't changed or it's really just accelerating pre-existing trends. So, so much of what you've seen during the pandemic, such as the rise of online learning, the increase in digital content, the renewed emphasis on assessments that get more into what students are learning. There are various trends that were already happening and you could argue nothing's happened other than it's going faster. 
But I think one of the differences is we're not going from this smooth, long-term linear transformation. We suddenly are getting into step function changes, shocks to the system. And I think the repercussions around that type of change is very different for higher ed. So yes, there's been a transition to on not to online learning exclusively, but an increase in its strategic importance. Well, last spring, everybody's doing it. And just the very nature of the fact that almost all students and faculty are now teaching remote or online or in that type of courseware, well, that changes a lot. You have a whole new set of people, you have a different set of dynamics. And I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is because of that rapid adoption, the change in adoption patterns. And it changes, you know, it sets your priorities differently. Like certainly there's a lot more priority, not just on things that might make sense, but things that can make sense today for a much broader suite of people, intuitive natural design with platforms, accessibility that people get to have their material right away. So the biggest thing I'd say that's changed is the nature of adoption, not the specific topics themselves. But I do think those changes are, are going to have far-reaching consequences. Yeah, Phil, I certainly agree. I mean, acceleration is the word we use, I think, the most. And that, you know, your, your idea of kind of step function level, we certainly feel like we got maybe a couple years worth of acceleration lift, if you will, in the continued digital transformation. And the thing that we feel strongly about is that that's a permanent acceleration. And whether it's institutions or students, faculty make the shift from print to digital, it sticks. So we expect that it was not a one-time event, but it just lifted and accelerated the overall transformation. The other thing I would say, and I suppose this relates, you had a recent article saying, look, when schools really need to have started this transformation about, about a decade ago, and we would agree with you on that. And in fact, we were we were powering a lot of the, what we call enterprise institutions, the ones with centralized decision-making. We really, that was fundamental to our growth and, and developing our capabilities that we were we were powering a lot of those institutions and still do today. One of the things we saw in all of that that I found interesting was that because of the way it hit, many schools couldn't fully transform the way they delivered the course materials. The ones that had already started to adopt some of the newer models, the inclusive access type models, leaned further into it. They were well positioned and we saw significant growth there. But it was harder for the stores to shift in the middle of all this. There was just so much going on, right? But I think that we've certainly seen now more and more institutions, stores coming on board with, with full support of the kind of inclusive access type programs. Part of the reason I wrote the article was trying to point out, you know, you can't do change what you did 10 years ago, but it's almost trying to reinforce the idea that we're dealing with existential questions now about digital education. And we're not just talking about little white papers and you know, foundation funded talks about what might happen. It's like, no, this matters now as an existential issue to institution. And you're seeing the institutions who had already invested and were ready, they're doing better than the other ones. But the right thing to do is to learn from that and say, we've got to treat this seriously now. It has to be a strategic part of our mission. We need to figure out what makes sense. So it's that's sort of the nature of what I've seen is these have become existential questions for institutions. So they need to be treated differently. A big part of what we see is that the institutions are taking such a more direct active role in ensuring their students have access to the right materials at the right time. And that's what we power. 
right? You know, our business is making it easier for students to, to affordably access the content they need right when the course starts, day one. You know, a big part of what we see taking place is the institutions having seen that often the students were not prepared with the materials, were avoiding purchasing the materials for cost reasons or other, are now vested in ensuring that their students have that access, right? And so that they're leaning in to these programs and we're helping the campus retailers power that through the institutions. The great thing about it is everybody wins. We're seeing meaningful improvements in affordability. The students' outcomes are improved. That They have access to the content. The faculty benefit. The institutions want their students to be successful. And the publishers want to move to an all-in digital model where they get paid every time a student takes the content. If that model can be supported, they can charge less, right? And so we've seen dramatic improvements in affordability overall. Or I'm hoping we see more of is more on the pedagogical side. Like I've seen there's there were very quick decisions made to increase access to materials impacting affordability. But I think what's taking more time is people to think beyond that, to be able to say, well, if we're going this direction or with, we need to think about it differently instead of just, just dealing with affordability. Right. How do you, what are the changes needed to make so that you improve the teaching and learning at a deeper level? That's what hasn't happened yet in my mind is a deeper rethinking of pedagogical models. And we've been talking about this for years, decades. It's just now that it's a much more important question, it's time to get more serious about it. So I've seen better improvements in affordability than I have in terms of pedagogical changes based on that. It's still relatively early, right, with digital, and the publishers have gone through dramatic changes and are still working through that. I think there's a lot of investment taking place in the space, a lot of emphasis there. It's just, I think it just takes time. We've all felt the increased acceleration of change and continue to feel the impact. Keep listening to hear Phil and Ken's thoughts on the impact of acquisitions and how the changes in ed tech are creating the need for evolving business models. One of the big changes in the last year has been the acquisition of ed tech companies. We experienced this at Vital Source as we're recently acquired by Francisco Partners. This is a great opportunity for us and one that's really exciting. Kent, can you share the impact of this acquisition and what it means for Vital Source going forward? Sure, I'm happy to. I mentioned earlier that, that Ingram acquired Vital Source in 2006 and really did, a, I think, did a fantastic job allowing us to invest in front of the market. And Ingram felt like it was the right time to sort of help propel Vital Source even further to sell the business. And we are just super excited to be with Francisco Partners. Francisco Partners is one of the largest private equity companies. They are focused, you know, on technology and they've got a big emphasis and a growing portfolio portfolio in education technology. And I mean, Phil, to your earlier point, it takes investment to continue to improve the, the solutions. And we couldn't be happier about being with Francisco. They believe in what we're doing. They're excited about our mission. They're ready with whatever resources we need to continue to improve our business. And I, I think the team is excited. And that's that doesn't take anything away from Ingram. The you know, very well-run business, doing very well. It was just the right time to make this kind of a transition. Well, you mentioned the right time. That's what I get asked a lot. Actually, a lot from media interviews where it's like, what's the connecting thread with all of these acquisitions? Obviously, you have the pandemic. 
But to me, I think it's investment and timing. And on the timing, take that in reverse order, it gets to our previous conversation. These are critical issues. People understand them better now and we need to deal with them. But then you tie in investment and you have to look at it. And so part of it is you have what's virtually free money. I mean, we have a financial situation and a lot of money available that needs to be spent, low interest rates, but that is a big factor. But you also have to say, Right now, we are seeing the pandemic responses and a lot of possibilities. We're not quite sure what's going to happen in the long term, but we know it's going to require investment. So that timing element, it's right, not just for you guys. There's a lot of companies. Another one very different market, if you will, is Schoology getting acquired by PowerSchool. Now, they were acquired before the pandemic, so it wasn't directly triggered, but I think it hit some of the themes that you guys you're talking about. If that hadn't happened, then there's a question, would they have been able to manage that rapid uptake in the K-12 market for their case of schools needing an LMS or needing much deeper usage, the hosting charges, the additional service? Well, they had the funding and the heft behind them to be able to handle that and to make meaningful changes. And timing was critical. It's like they They didn't know it, but you couldn't have picked a better time to do that investment. But I see that throughout EdTech. There's so many stories where it's like, you need timing, you need investment. The time's right, right now to be able to make a change, but we're making the change for the long-term transformation that we don't think is going back to what it was before. Certainly. I mean, the K-12 LMS space, big changes there. I'm not sure where there may be faster changes required. Higher ed space largely saturated with LMSs already, but K-12, you know, at district level, much, much lower percentage, but had had to move very fast in this past year. So, you know, big movement there on the LMS space. And as you know, we've seen a huge uptick in the kind of one-to-one device support in K-12 as well. I mean, but certainly huge changes in the, in the technology space there. Some of the dynamics are quite different, which is interesting because you'll have the same, a lot of the same vendors crossing over, but, you know, talking learning platforms or just platforms in general. And K-12, there's much more of a natural bundled type of market. We can't tolerate, or they don't have the infrastructure and the staffing to handle a best of breed approach. Whereas in higher education, you do have much more of a best of breed approach and based on the nature of students and IT staff and library, you know, various groups. Groups, they can handle it. So it's it's actually there's some really big differences beyond just saturation. But you know that gets again to the the timing of the moment. It's uh, there's so much strategic change that's happening, but that change is happening different in different segments of the market overall. You certainly need investment. You certainly need to have the right timing and sort of that ratchet idea that you mentioned. That you know there's an acceleration, and we're not we're definitely not going back to the old normal. And there's a lot that's open to be defined on what's going to be happening, say, five years from now. So a lot of what's needed right now, both with the, in the vendor space, but also within schools is resilience. It's so much, that's where a lot of the investment I think is needed, is how can we handle the unknown? You know, how can we be resilient and handle different shocks to the system? And that's, you know, another common thread that I'm seeing. Although it's a challenge on how you deal with that. 
the Ingram content businesses all grew out of a little company they still have called Tennessee Book Company, which is a K through 12 textbook depository for the state of Tennessee. And that's still operating. So they're still the primary provider for the content in the public K through 12 schools in Tennessee. I know that last year actually had significant print sales. So that was one of the interesting aspects of this. So, right, you had this acceleration in K-12 into digital, but at the same time, because you had to ensure that everyone could have access to the content and you've got all these infrastructure concerns. So they had to actually provide more print. So they had to go one for one on print, if you will, where previously maybe they could do things like use classroom sets. And to me, I think that sort of gets to the fact of there's a false dilemma that's out there that people, oh, it's either face-to-face or online, or it's print or digital. And really, as opposed to seeing like a lot of the in-between the hybrid models, that there's a lot of importance of face-to-face and of print still, but that doesn't mean that we're, you know, we're going back. We need to figure out how you mix the two with new models. So it's not just a dilemma, how much of this versus that. It's more of a, we're heading into new models in many different areas, digital content, both in terms of print versus online, but then the courseware, the tools that go with it, the models of how they get distributed and paid for. I mean, it's like a whole new set of models. So it's a big part of what we do is provide the flexibility of of the models. Our objective is to make it easy, right? But it's not an easy environment. The ecosystem's not easy. We work across thousands of publishers, thousands of institutions, all supported by, you know, a large number of different platforms and technologies. And we try to, you know, we bring that all together. And so that's kind of our job. And And a big part of that are the business models and having flexibility there and having flexibility in the in the technology infrastructure to manage the integrations, all with that idea of making sure that students have that easy access to the materials they need to be successful. Course Materials business models continue to change rapidly to meet the needs of providing day one access to students at lower costs. Let's continue the conversation as we dive into the important role that LMS has across institutions, as well as how these changes are impacting the student and faculty experience. Our campus stores are becoming more integrated with the LMS, and it's happening at this time when the LMS is really serving as almost a central hub at institutions. Phil, can you share some insight into what you're seeing in the LMS space as it's been thrust into this integral role at institutions? You mentioned, Lisa, the central hub. That's another idea. Like, if you look at the publishers, they all have their own internal LMSs or outsourced LMSs, and they might even have five or 10 on different projects. And so it's not as if they didn't have the actual features of an LMS. But then part of the question comes up, why didn't they do more as an LMS to compete with LMS vendors? And one of the big reasons is because what's the end users really see the LMS increasingly as a hub to access things, to tie it together, to provide somewhat of a consistent experience across different learning apps and content. And so a lot of that hub is just over through the pandemic, it's become even more important. Even though it was already important before, it's really critical. But the thing I've pointed out is one change, however, is synchronous video is now also approaching that same level. Whereas we used to view it as like a small sidelight, it's used here and there, but definitely just as an add-on to an LMS. 
synchronous video, you need to have a strategy behind that as well. So these this whole hub idea of learning platforms is stronger than ever, absolutely applies to LMS, but it also opens up the question about how do you handle an LMS and a video platform and how do you have a cohesive strategy? So these big picture questions are a lot of what I've looked at. And Bill, what do you see that institutions are doing who are, you feel the most successful with their LMS implementations? The most successful, I'd say two things. You don't take five years to make a decision that, you know, when it's time to make a decision, if it's switching or whatever it is, you get a move on and start dealing with the pedagogical usage, not just which vendor to go with. So you move quickly into the usage element. But I'd say the other big area is, do you have shared buy-in on the decision? Have you actually set it up so that people, even if they you didn't pick the system that they wanted, where people can say, that wasn't what I would have picked, but I see why you picked it and I can back that up. Now let's move on and figure out how to use it as effectively as possible. So both of those are actually process issues. And a lot of the other common elements, clearly we've shifted to a primarily a cloud-based platforms for scalability reasons. Clearly the whole market has shifted towards much more of an intuitive design. So you don't have to train end user just on what to click and how to use it. So you've had those broad trends that are definitely, definitely happening. I think so much goes back to process. If you do a process, you will hear those needs from your end users and your administrators, and they'll come out. But shared buy-in is probably the biggest success factor that I've seen. And understanding it's not about the tech itself. It's about how it gets applied to not just teaching in the existing classrooms, but enabling new business models or pedagogical. If you look at, as we go more and more digital, who knows how much more remote we are online, how do you see institutions differentiating themselves? The environment they're differentiating within is also changing. So is online education, you know, back in the 2000s, it was so much the era of either the for-profits or a handful of schools that the Penn State World Campus, UCF, that, that invested early on. Then you almost got into this shift in the 2010s more to nonprofits. And a lot of that, not all of it, but some of it was driven by the online program management, the OPM companies, and breaking down that stigma, if you will, of online education being sort of something on the side. And MOOCs, they certainly didn't hit their initial promise of changing everything, but they also helped break down that stigma. So if you get to the question of like, how do you differentiate? I'd say the biggest one is it has to be integrated within your institution is really a strategic set of capabilities that enable each program to modify itself to what's changing student demand, pandemic demand, you know, so like, is it becoming a core competency of digital education in general? But then you also have to look, enrollment's a huge issue, right? And gets into tuition. We're no longer in a, if you build it, they were come type of model. You know, there's only a handful of national brands that really, you know, can attract people across all the states. So a lot of the differentiation needs to be based for most schools, not all, but the majority of schools need to focus on my region, my local population, the local workforce, how people can get jobs. So, so much of that differentiation comes down to how can you meet the local demands of what you do and that it's a strategic 
change. Like we're really focused on our students within this state and the jobs they're getting afterwards and, you know, the changes to non-traditional students. So, so much of that differentiation, I think, comes from being aware of who you are and where you are, and then making sure that it's a strategic response, not just something you throw out there, you know, as a quick solution. I think it's so interesting, even in just the last year, when we look at faculty and student watch data produced by NACS, we know that 54% more of students are saying they're using their LMS and actually more faculty are using the LMS than even use a traditional print textbook, which I think is a really interesting concept when you think about usage. And then you look at how that applies to how institutions are actually leveraging and looking at that usage and how that relates to that student and faculty experience inside the LMS. Curious on what your thoughts are just around how the student faculty experience is changing and has changed over the last year? Uh, Again, it's deeper usage. And with deeper usage, which is both in terms of using it every day or, you know, throughout the day, but also throughout all of my courses, I think um, it highlights the importance of engagement. So it's sort of exposing the areas where the industry is sort of weak. And I'm not saying that as a negative, it's sort of we're discovering, hey, these issues really have to be solved. And so if you talk about faculty and students, they're definitely using learning platforms, courseware, you know, online tools far more than they used to over the past year. It's actually, if you look at the survey data, it's worked. I mean, the industry responded and people are not saying I'm not learning a thing. People are adapting to it, but now they're really pushing, saying we need more. And a lot of that comes from engagement, you know, saying, okay, this is not good enough. The threaded discussion board within an LMS, it's great that the LMS got us you know, to survive the pandemic as we're moving forward, but we've got to have a more engaging experience. So I'd say just deeper usage from time and courses, but exposing the things that have to be addressed soon. And I'd say the biggest areas around engagement and that students feel that they're really getting an interactive experience with instructors, with their peers, that it's not just reading something asynchronously and then taking a test. It's more of an engaging experience. It's good. I think it's good that it's exposing how important these areas are. It'll make things better. I, I suppose the pandemic kind of forced faculty who had otherwise been reluctant to really leverage the LMS to really get into it. It became a requirement, if you will, as opposed to kind of a nice to have. And that got them much more exposed and thinking about how they could leverage it and going to force the LMS providers to continue to improve their solutions, right? I mean, the the greater engagement is probably a permanent step up. And and that's that's a good thing. Now it's Phil, as you're saying, we need to kind of focus on making sure that the necessary functionality is there. The necessary functionality is there and the instructors know how to use it because you do see that in a lot of mostly individual university surveys or, you know, as we're helping schools with strategy, you do get a lot of, hey, somebody needs to make sure that all of my teachers understand how this could be used even for the existing functionality. So it's sort of that parallel push, both in usage and in the functionality itself. I I think that both are going to be good. 
One thing I, I look at educational change is that whole time dimension is so frustrating because it seems like every change we talk about, people overestimate how quickly the system can change and how quickly it should change. But then sometimes when we sit back and we say, hey, look at the past decade of change, you're like, oh, this is an actually a deeper change than we realized. So it's almost like as you're setting strategy, you need to be able to almost separate time expectations from that type of decision process because we are going through significant changes. There are significant improvements and you're calling out some of them. But in each individual case, there's there's naturally, and I'm one of them, frustration with why is this taking three to five years? This should have been a year change. So time is very interesting in education. I once thought, I actually gave a talk on this, really kind of related to learning analytics and engagement analytics. And we were working at the time with some of the largest of the, the big online institutions, many of whom get away from the more traditional academic calendar and have rolling term starts, some as frequently as every week or two weeks. And I sort of felt like that environment could help be an accelerator, right? Because you could test things, get quicker feedback, make changes, kind of have this faster cycle, if you will, of continuous improvement. Well, there's a continuous improvement. Then there's also just the responsiveness to changing student demographics. It's like sometimes if you look at the whole apply and this, you know, once a year a program starts and you apply six months ahead of time. Well, so many students are not the 18 to 22 or 18 to 24 full-time student model. So there's even the serving students with where they need to be. So that's a change. That one right there, I get very frustrated with how few schools have rolling starts and that we haven't really benefited from that other than in mostly centralized curriculum schools. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it couldn't be a broader impact. And yeah, that's an, that's an area where I get frustrated. We haven't learned more from that yet. In closing, what do you think we're going to see in the next year to two years in ed tech? You know, what, what's the next thing that we think is actually going to emerge to impact institutions? I think in the next one to two years, it's going to be the shift now that we have so many more people, faculty in particular, who are involved in digital education, getting a new set of input and a new set mentality towards how do we improve course designs. So I think that if I'm part of it is what I'm hoping, but part of it's also what I think we'll be seeing. If you give us two years time, I think we're going to have some pretty meaningful improvements in course design now that we have so many faculty in particular deeply involved in it and seeing what digital education is and seeing what it can do. So I think that's what I would focus on the most. And I would just say, certainly I agree, I think we'll see a lot of movement, continued movement from print to digital. And you'll, you'll see kind of all the, the foundational technologies being there to support what Phil's just said, begin to provide the, the ecosystem, if you will, to ensure that we can then begin to take really the next step in terms of, you know, providing solutions with higher efficacy. The implications of what I'm saying is I think that support is going to be continue to be much more on the intuitive design and help for a change pedagogical approach, almost professional development, intuitive design, easy type of mentality. As And I don't think it's going to be highly advanced features. 
I don't think that's going to be the emphasis. It's going to be how do you help people use it in the real world today and in a natural way. Some really great insight from both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so so happy to have you. And thanks for giving our listeners such great detail and insight into you know what we've been through, what we're going through, and, and what's to come in the very near future. So thank you both. Hey, love the conversation. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, Lisa, thank you. Phil, always great to talk with you. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Verba Coffee Chat podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you get notified when a new episode is live. 